So I got wheeled into the room and, and this man came in and he was introduced to me as being a surgeon. And he came over, shook my hand, very nice man, beautiful smile. And I felt calm. I felt that I was in good hands, that I was safe. The next thing I remember is I woke up feeling like I was cut in two, screaming. I heard, I could, couldn't see anything. And then there were people at my sides that grabbed my shoulders and held me down and laid right on top of me, put their whole bodies right on top of me. And I don't know whether I passed out or whether they gave me something, but I felt like I'd been cut in half horizontally. And I remember thinking it was like something out of a Stephen King novel or something with huge claws comes out of the mist and, and just cuts your body completely into. And then the next thing I remember, I was being wheeled down a hallway. I still couldn't see, it was kind of dark. And I was screaming and crying and begging to die. Oh my God, somebody please kill me. Oh my God, please kill me, please let me die. Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the U.S., killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported, because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews, and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, RemediesCounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error, chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Hello, humanity. I'm Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews. And in this episode, I interview Elizabeth Hopkins of Nova Scotia, a maritime province in eastern Canada. Elizabeth shares how she went to the emergency department with intense abdominal pain and was shamed by the doctor for wasting their time. A few days later, Elizabeth is experiencing even more pain and has started projectile vomiting and is admitted to the hospital where they find what they had missed before. Elizabeth's bowel had ruptured and the infection was spilling into her abdominal cavity. She was in life-threatening sepsis. The doctor gave Elizabeth two options. The first, having simple, minimally invasive laparoscopic surgery to drain the infection from the abscesses and let the 
bowel heal on its own, or option two, invasive surgery. Elizabeth asked for the minor surgery. When she awoke from the surgery, she was in such intense pain, she felt like they had cut her in half, and she begged for the nurses to kill her to escape the pain. Then Elizabeth's health care got much worse. Then she found out that they had removed 10 inches of her colon and left her with an ostomy bag. Elizabeth had not given consent for that surgery, let alone informed consent. If you are experiencing your own challenges due to a medical error, or living with a chronic illness, or LGBT issues, or any of life's challenges, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. You can support the podcast by subscribing on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and other podcast platforms. And you can also leave a kind comment or review. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast. Go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a podcast patron. Now, here is my interview with Elizabeth Hopkins, and a word of warning, some folks may be triggered by Elizabeth's healthcare experience. So, where did you grow up, and what was your childhood like? Uh, kind of grew up all over the place. Uh, my father was military, um, so we moved around every few years. Uh, it was pretty much what well, was normal for me. Um, it might not be for other people, but we moved around, didn't stay, didn't know the same people all my life. Although sometimes on occasion you go to another posting and you see somebody that you were posted with in another place. So yeah, over the years you might meet the odd person that you knew before. Um, I think life was sort of normal. My dad was military police, um, and he was also a Korean War veteran. Um, he had PTSD, though I don't think he ever knew it or would admit to it. Um, How did you see that manifest? Uh, rages, uh, inability to handle stress. Um, as a police officer, he was fairly high up. Um, considered to be like the chief um, in a, a number of places, but as uh, when I was a toddler, he uh, uh, investigated suicides, military suicides and stuff, and so he dealt with a lot of traumatic things there, and he was also um, hospitalized during Korea for a couple of weeks for what they called at that time shell shock. Mm, right, that whole term. Um, yeah, so you, we kind of lived on the sharp edge of his emotions. Um, a, a good part of our life. Mm -hmm. So sort of having to always be on alert or be wary. 
be wary, uh, be quiet. Um, I mean, there were four of us kids and my parents, so family of six, and you couldn't come up with a quieter family um, because we were pretty well behaved. Is that, yes. do you hear the siren too? Yes. Okay. Yes, yes. yes. It's, it's, it's actually a trigger for me. Um, oh, they went right by your place. It, it does. I live on one of the main avenues to get into the city, and ambulances go by night and day. And, um, well, I've had PTSD since I was 16, and uh, um, ambulances used to take my legs right out from underneath me when I was a kid, uh, you know, like 18. Um, and I've gotten a lot better, but in the last five years, it's been a little worse because of what happened with the medical errors. So. Right. Okay. So after a childhood spent uh, moving around quite a bit and having to make new friends and new schools every time you moved, uh, then what happened in your life? Uh, when we, we, um, uh, we went to Ottawa when I was 15, and um, we had come to Nova Scotia first, um, and my dad had bought a house in Nova Scotia, uh, planning to retire, um, but he was still in the military, and he got posted to Cyprus and then to Ottawa. And uh, um, when he went back to Ottawa after doing a tour of Cyprus, uh, he said, I'm not going alone this time, so we all went back with him and spent about a year there before returning to Nova Scotia when he retired. And I went to university at 20 um, in New Brunswick. Um, New Brunswick is where I was born, but I, I kind of consider Nova Scotia my home. Um, and when I was in university, my mom got sick. Uh, my second year of university, she got cancer. Uh, bowel cancer. Both my parents died of bowel cancer. So there was uh, her fighting that. It was, uh, she was sick for four years, had four surgeries, two different kinds of chemotherapy, lost her hair twice. Uh, it's a very trying time, but I, I graduated from university and came home to work. I was, I was going to go back to university, but she asked me not to because she kind of needed me because she was ill, so I took the first job I could get, um, which was a reporter for a small town newspaper. Um, and kind of went from there. Um, worked that job for three years and then became a photo tech after that, but I kept an association up with the newspapers. Um, so that I always covered things over a 15-year period with them while I went on to other things. Um, went back to school a couple of times. The last time was in 2011, 2012. Um, I went to community college uh, to take information technology um, because I'd been working as a caregiver for intellectually challenged adults uh, for about 10 years and I had a really bad back and not much chance of 
of uh, going any higher in the company, the organization that I was in. Um, I lived and worked with intellectually challenged adults. And then I decided to go back to school again in 2011 and 2012 and finished the first year and then ran out of money. Um, so I had to go back to work again and was thinking that I'd work a couple of years and, and, uh, and then go back to school again after that, at least part time to, to finish that out, um, trying to improve my life. And I got sick. <laughs> I, uh, so this is in 2012, 2014, 2014, I was working as a caregiver for a man, um, who had, uh, MS, who was bedridden with MS. And, uh, I had only worked with him for three months. Um, and I, had, I had worked a couple of other jobs in there. Um, a couple of them were part-time. One of them was night and they were at the same time. And uh, when I got this job, I was behind on bills and I was trying to uh, catch up. So I wasn't eating um, or not much or just kind of when I could afford it, which was payday. And, and then I was trying to get my bills straightened out. Uh, so I went about three months kind of starving, um, eating when I could, when I had the money, but mostly putting money towards bills. And uh, towards the end of August 2014, um, just when I was catching up, um, my bowels stopped functioning. And a few days later, it, uh, it started to hurt um, really badly. So and, uh, that meant uh, you stopped having bowel movements? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It just, it was really quiet, like nothing was moving. And so this was just out of the blue, no signs of? No, 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 uh, no past history of, of any kind of gastrointestinal problem of any kind and I was uh, just a little bit older than my mom was when she was diagnosed with cancer about cancer and having both parents diagnosed with about cancer and, and dying from it um, I went to the ER because the pain was really bad and generally I'm pretty healthy um, I mean I have a few things like blood pressure problems since I was 20 um, and some mental health issues and arthritis and ordinary things like that but I've never been sick and uh, so I, I yeah I was quite nervous that that something was happening like cancer or something because I, I figured that I had a blockage or something so I went to the ER instead of going to my doctor because my doctor's in another town and my car had broken down a few weeks before. So I was without a vehicle and I went to the ER and, and told them um, that I had a tremendous amount of pain and it was in different areas, but mostly in the lower left 
part of my abdomen, uh, but in a few places and that I'd never experienced anything like this and, and that I didn't think my bowel was working. It was a young resident. ERs are overcrowded and, and uh, not enough people there, but he, uh, he, he listened and said I had good bowel sounds and uh, told me to go home and eat something. Um, I was only constipated um, and that uh, he said, uh, eat something, preferably high fiber and it'll work its way out. And I was relieved. I remember sighing and was quite relieved because everybody wants to hear that they're gonna be okay. But I didn't really believe him because I've never had pain like this before in my life. He didn't do any tests, no blood tests or x-rays or anything like that. And just sent me home and, and told me that the ER was for emergencies. So um, kind of shamed you? Uh, yeah, I felt very shamed, like I was abusing the system. Um, and it was 11 o'clock at night and I had worked 64 hours that week um, as a, a caregiver. And I still had, well, I was going, I was scheduled for 64 hours that week. I worked two more shifts after that. Anyway, as, as I was leaving, they let me go. Um, and as I was leaving, a nurse came in and asked for a urine sample. I was supposed to cover their behinds or whatever, but they never did any blood tests and never did any white blood cell count. Um, no x-ray. Um, and, I, and, and I went home and I, I had to work at, I think it was 8 or 8.30 in the morning. And I, I, I did. I did so in a lot of pain, but I'd been in pain for a few days. And it was getting worse. And I, I, I tried to listen to him. So I went out. I, I had to go up to the drugstore to get medication for, for my client. And I, I, I stopped at a fast food place and got a small salad. I didn't have much appetite. I, I hadn't eaten in days or had much to drink in days. And I ate about a quarter of it and uh, went home or whatever. Anyway, about 3.35 in the morning, uh, Wednesday, September 10th, I woke up and the pain was incredible. And I was vomiting projectile vomiting and, and trying to run up the stairs, but I looked at my watch to see what time it was. And I, and I knew something had gotten a whole lot worse. Um, but I also knew that I had to work that morning. Um, and I had a 15 hour shift. So I had to go to work anyway. And I spent much of the day lying on my client's bathroom floor vomiting while trying to look after him and trying to get him in Hoyer lifts and get him up and, and, and take care of him. It was just incredible agony. Um, I could barely walk. And like I said, I was laying on the floor when I wasn't looking after my client. And actually when I was trying to get him up, I had to, I had to leave him in the Hoyer lift and run in to vomit. Um, wow. So you're providing health care and you're the one who's needing 
some health care yeah. at that point. Yes, yes. I, it, it's one of my brags is the last day I ever worked, I worked with a ruptured valve. Anyway, I, uh, I went home after 11 o'clock, which was the time I got home. Uh, I fortunately didn't walk. I bought a bus pass after being sent home from the hospital um, couple, well, the night, night, two nights before. Um, and I spent the next couple of days on the couch and thinking about um, going back to the hospital, but I was kind of ashamed. Um, my car was broken. I did have the bus pass, but I didn't think that I could walk down the hill. So anyway, I, I wound up laying on the couch being sick and unable to move, unable to eat until Friday, September 13th, when my roommate came home. I, I told her that I was really ill and rather than being down in my room, which was in the basement, I spent time on the couch because the bathroom was up there and I was pretty ill. Um, and I said, look, tomorrow, could you perhaps take me back to the ER? Um, because this is, this is really bad. I, I, I thought that Wednesday night when I got off work that I was going to die. I went out and passed out in the back porch in the rain for about an hour or so. Sorry. <laughs> um, anyway, she said no problem. She said my skin was turning gray. And I went uh, back to the hospital um, Saturday evening, September 13th. Um, and, and told them what had happened, that I'd been sent home and I had terrible pains in my lower abdomen, especially in, in projectile vomiting uh, constantly. And uh, so they took me in and did some blood tests and uh, an x-ray. Um, and after that, they took me back to a room and I told the nurse that I was going to go out to the main waiting room um, because I, I couldn't sit up. I, I had to lay down. A few hours later, we went to uh, check on what was going on, and, and I guess he was an attending physician. I said, oh, we've been looking for you. We got your blood test back, and and he said, you have diverticulitis. And what is diverticulitis? Diverticulitis is like pockets in the bowel, um, and apparently, uh, food, food or seeds, whatever can get caught in there and cause infection, which needs to be treated with antibiotics because worst case scenario, it can rupture. You can have ruptured bowels, get peritonitis, sepsis, uh, you can die. Um, so they knew this from the white blood cell count. They didn't tell me what it was at the time, but at the time, I know from medical records it was 28.02 and normal is nine. He said the x-ray didn't show anything. There wasn't any, but nobody mentioned anything about surgery or anything. He just said uh, it was after 11 o'clock at night and the, a, a nurse or maybe she was another resident came and gave me this drink, which was gastrograph. And, um, and we need you to come back here in the morning take another one of these drinks. They made me take a drink then and take another drink in the morning and to come back at 10 o'clock for a CAT scan. Um, 
And this uh, drink was in preparation for the CAT scan? Yes, it's for dye um, so that they can see your insides better during the CAT scan. So anyway, I, I came back in the morning, walked in on my own power and had the CAT scan and the x-ray and waited a, a little while for them to come out and a, a resident came out and got me and took me to a small office kind of separate I think from the ER he said that uh, he said I'm looking at your CAT scan he said you've got four holes in your intestine uh, he said there could be more but he said I'm looking at it in four is how many I, I can count and he, he was a nice young guy um, and very positive and intelligent and, and he said, there's, you know, one of two ways we can deal with this. Either, you know, you have abscesses, you have intra-abdominal abscesses. And he said, uh, the first way we can deal with it is to uh, drain the abscesses and allow the bowel to heal on its own. And he said, the second is surgery. And I, I he didn't explain what, but he... Um, I said, I'll go with the first option. And he says, I thought you would, but he said, I need to, uh, I need to go upstairs and check with the boss. So they originally said the diverticulitis and now they're saying that uh, you've got holes, four holes in your colon at least. Yes. And uh, also, the, what's the other term you use? Abscesses in, Abs in, outside the, the colon from the infection spilling outside. They didn't say the word um, peritonitis, but I, I kind of imagined that I had peritonitis. Okay, I'm not familiar with that term either. Uh, it's just some... Um, Inflammation of the perineal? Yeah, uh, the contents of my bowels were leaking into my peritoneum. And, the, and, the, and they didn't say that, but uh, I, I, I figured I did because I, I knew that I had walked around for four days with a ruptured bowel. He was fairly impressed that I walked in on my own because uh, with a ruptured bowel I shouldn't be able to walk at all. So he went upstairs and I waited down there and really thought about leaving because I was I was I was really scared. You know, hospitals are scary, ruptured bowels are scary. And I had known a woman, a, a handicapped person who died before I ever took my position um but 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 I knew her sisters I, I worked in the same house that she had lived in but she had died before I got there who had died of a peritonitis induced heart attack within 12 hours of her bowel rupturing during a colonoscopy so that's why I figured I had peritonitis because that was yeah that's what she died of was peritonitis induced heart attack Anyways, I, I was going to leave because everything was telling me to get out, but I didn't figure I'd get very far because I could barely walk. I, I stayed. I, I um, stayed to listen to what he had to say. Anyway, he came back down probably 20 minutes later and said, you're going to need surgery. Didn't say anything about what. And the only thing we had talked about was draining the abscesses, and I need you to sign this form. Nothing else, no explanation of any 
kind what they were going to do when I didn't think to ask because I just assumed that they were going to drain the abscesses and let my bowel heal. How would they drain the abscesses? Uh, they could do it with needles or they can do it laparoscopically, um, which is a less invasive um, procedure. Mm -hmm. In fact, at that time, I w wasn't really aware that they did any other surgery other than laparoscopically anymore. I, that's how naive I was because I have three siblings and a niece who had their gallbladders removed laparoscopically. And years ago, it used to be, you know, they'd split you wide open and make a big mess of your, um, but now it's done with kind of microscopically, I guess, but with a scope and minor, a lot less intrusive. So anyway, you I thought you were going, you thought you were signing a release form for the, the draining of the abscesses. Yes. Yeah. And I could barely see, uh, partly because of pain, um, and partly because I had contact lenses in, and I had been crying, and they were kind of scummy. So my eyes were really blurry, so I could barely see the line to sign it, and I, and I, I could not see to read it. And the young man sat over on the opposite side of the room and didn't say anything to me and um, I signed it thinking that I, they were just going to drain these abscesses and that everything was going to be okay. I might have to stay a day or two and heal up but it, it, I had uh, where I had thought I was dying since Wednesday night I, I kind of had the feeling that things were not as dire as I thought. So anyway, he took me into another room, into a, a like a nursing unit, and handed me over to a nurse, very nice lady, who looked after me and got me ready for this, what I thought was going to be a, a scope. And no one said anything to me. They asked me tons of questions, um, and some of them I didn't understand why. Uh, um, what kind of uh, stressors do you have in your life and uh, um, what kind of supports do you have at home, emotional supports. And um, first thing they asked me was, was it wearing, uh, did I wear contacts or anything? I said, yes, I'm wearing contacts now, which they wrote down. Anyway, very nice lady. And I waited there. They hooked me up to an IV and uh, gave me some painkiller and stuff and uh, the wait was about uh, five to six hours. I had gone in there at noon time and around 5.30 or so they came in and, and got me and took me to a room like a patient room um, with another bed in there and a, another patient and uh, my, my nephew came in and his girlfriend and I, I had spent some time on the telephone trying to get to my family. I had left my cell phone home and uh, couldn't remember uh, a lot of numbers without my cell phone. I always carry emergency numbers with you. Um, but I did get a hold of my brother eventually, and he got a hold of my nephew who had just come up to the city to go to school. And he met me in the room with his girlfriend. and. Right after that, they came and got me and, and took me down to the OR. 
outside the OR, people were kind of coming at me and asking me questions, like if I had uh, any kind of problem with uh, receiving blood products. And I said, no, it kind of made me pause for a few minutes. And I said, no, but, you know, I understand that blood products may be part of something if something bleeds or and they asked me if I had any allergies and I, I had, um, they, they said my name and said, were you a patient here um, in July of 2013 for anaphylactis? And I said, yes. And you're allergic to quinipril. And I said, what's quinipril? And they said, well, I said, is it the same thing as acupril, which is a blood pressure drug? And I said, no, I'm not. So I figured that they'd correct that. And, and then there was an anesthesiologist who came out and talked to me. And mostly that was uh, to see how far back I could put my head. I knew I was going out. Um, but mostly it was to see how far I could open my mouth and, and how far back I could put my neck so that they wouldn't have any problem intubating me. But nobody not the nurse when I was in the unit for five hours or anything else ever asked me if I understood what procedure I was having or said anything about the procedure. So I got wheeled into the room and, and this man came in and he was introduced to me as being a surgeon and he said he, he'll be the one doing the procedure and he came over, shook my hand, very nice man, beautiful smile. And I felt calm. I felt that I was in good hands, that I was safe. The next thing I remember is I woke up feeling like I was cut in two, screaming. And I couldn't catch my breath. And I tried to sit up. I heard, I could, couldn't see anything. But there were people that I heard a voice over top of my head. I think it was the anesthesiologist. And he called my name, Elizabeth, Elizabeth. No, 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 Elizabeth, Elizabeth. And then there were people at my sides that grabbed my shoulders and held me down and laid right on top of me, put their whole bodies right on top of me. And I don't know whether I passed out or whether they gave me something to make me go unconscious again. But I felt like I'd been cut in half horizontally. And I remember thinking it was like something out of a Stephen King novel or something with huge claws comes out of the mist and, and just cuts your body completely into. And then the next thing I remember, I was being wheeled down a hallway. I still couldn't see. It was kind of dark. And I was screaming and crying and begging to die. Oh, my God, somebody please kill me. Oh, my God, please kill me. Please let me die. And uh, the person wasn't talking to me. But we got to... Uh, a room, the lights sort of seemed a little clearer and, and I heard him speak to whoever was there, was a nurse, 
and uh, but I couldn't tell what he said, and I was I was um, I was just screaming, "Please kill me! Please let me die!" Just so much pain. I love the most incredible pain that I've ever felt worse than a ruptured valve. Um, and I, I knew that something had gone horribly wrong. Anyway, they, they, they wheeled me in the room and the nurse took over. She, um, I was uh, diaphoretic, um, sweating really, really badly from the pain. She, uh, she brought me, she, she said, would you like a cold cloth or a wet cloth? And I said, yes, please. And she told me that I'd lost my sigmoid colon and that I now had an ostomy. And I wanted to die even more. For folks who don't know, what is an ostomy? An ostomy is where part of your intestine is, is, uh, put out through a hole in your abdomen um, so that waste material stool can empty into a, a bag. Anyway, she uh, left me alone for a few minutes. It was in a, a ward, but there was nobody else there. Um, but she came back to do vitals and, and I was hooked up. Um, I still had an art line in my chest. Uh, which is, uh, I, I, I guess, like a, a central line where they can put drugs and and things that that was they put in me before um, they put me out for the procedure. Um, but they had me hooked up to a bunch of equipment so that they could read my heart rate and IVs and stuff. Anyway, she came back a few minutes later and asked me how I was and was I still feeling suicidal. She, she told me that it was probably a reaction from the, the anesthetic. I didn't think so, but uh, um, when she asked me if I, if I was doing better, I, I said, yeah, I was doing okay. I tried to calm myself down, but it wasn't. I, I, I still just wanted to die. And, was having really bizarre thoughts and uh, violent thoughts. And I, I got rid of those right away. And so um, before you're wanting them to kill you because you're in just in so much pain and now you're wanting to die, how come? I'm still in excruciating pain that uh, um, apparently I was in another room, like a recovery room before that. Um, before I got wheeled in, but I don't remember anything from there. But according to the hospital notes, the pain was not being controlled at all by medication. They were giving me, uh, I think it was still audit, and they were giving it often, and the pain was going uncontrolled. It was not having any effect. She, she asked me if I was still feeling suicidal and I, I said no, but I, I, I was still, I was just trying to keep myself calm. And she said, uh, she says you were pretty emotionally overwrought when you were brought in here. And I, uh, she asked me if I wanted to see somebody like a psychiatrist, somebody from mental health or whatever. And 
I said, yeah, I think that would be a good idea. And apparently I, I spent the night there. I had no idea what time it was or anything because I couldn't see any clock. I couldn't see anything. My eyes were worse than ever. Um, I still had contact lenses in. Um, no one had asked me to take them out. And I had them in for somewhere around a week and, and didn't know it because I was so out of it. So, um, so much in shock, like traumatized. Anyway, I, I guess I spent the night there um, because I went septic. Uh, apparently they say I was septic before the surgery. Um, the surgeon in one of his reports said that I was, uh, white blood cell count was 25, which was severely septic, but it was actually 28 the night before and it had gone down to a 24.52. So whether it was the, uh, um, the IV antibiotics or whether my body tried to fight it like I was only on it. IV antibiotics for an hour before they took the second blood test and my white blood cell count had dropped almost four points and my immature glands and other things that were out of whack um, were remedying, uh, getting better. Um, so I don't know if I was responding to treatment, if they needed to do what they needed to do. And I found out from the notes too that the CAT scan, the notes from the CAT scan, I don't know if anybody ever read them, but it said nothing about a ruptured bowel. But the, uh, the forensic report said that I had one hole in my bowel. And I've read that that could have been repaired with a colonoscopy. Um, I don't know, I'm not a doctor, that they could have blocked the hole with heat. Um, but I lost 10 inches of bowel anyway um, and had an ostomy. Uh, anyway, I was taken up to uh, another floor eventually. I guess it would be the next morning. Um, but I, I went severely septic uh, within a few hours of surgery. Uh, my white blood cell count went critical. Um, so they had to give me all kinds of extra antibiotics and stuff. It went up to 36 point something or whatever, which was marked as critical. Um, but eventually they got it down and uh, took me up in the morning um, to a room. They had a room for me and had all these bags on the IV pole. There were multiple bags, like four or five bags. And my whole body was puffed up like the, the Goodyear blimp. Um, I, I couldn't move my legs, I couldn't bend my knees, and I thought that was the fluid um, because that's part of the treatment for sepsis is to uh, um, keep the person full of fluids so that their their organs don't shut down and so that I, I guess you can lose your limbs, your limbs can start to die and in some cases be amputated for gangrene. Um, but I didn't know any of this because I didn't even know I was septic. Nobody told me. And eventually, I, I think it was then that this young couple of young residents came in and said, uh, well, surgery went well. And uh, I said, I don't believe in surgery. 
And he laughed at me and said, well, is that a religious thing or what? And I kind of said, I, I don't know. I wasn't super talkative. I just wanted to die. And he said, so what do you think of it now? So apparently they didn't know that I had surgery that I wasn't told about. And the girl pipes up and, and she's laughing and she says, oh yeah, don't tell Mike that. He just loves surgery. And I, I don't know if they were there to tell me what they did, but it, it, it never happened. Um, and they just left. So I never did really find out un until I got my medical records four months later what happened to me that my intestines were all glued together into the wall of my peritoneum um, and had to be cut off and in some cases burned off. And why were your uh, bowels attached to your perineum like that? Uh, be, apparently it can happen even if you have a ruptured bowel, the contents of your bowels going into your causing infection your bowels apparently can can even if they get to you right away can glue together and have to be prized apart uh can glue to the abdominal walls um to other organs the small intestines the loops were all glued together and they had to be taken out and prized apart and the this splenic colon where my spleen was uh, or was supposed to be, I don't have a spleen. I had surgery against my will when I was 16 after a car accident to remove my spleen, which is the start of my PTSD. They had to burn, uh, use a cautery tool to burn, disconnect my bowel from where it was glued to the inside of my, where, where my spleen should be but wasn't. And uh, my, intestines were glued to my liver and were coming down on my um, bladder uh, which was partially collapsed so yeah uh, apparently it was bad and they had to do a lot of work and they they took out my sigmoid colon and, and gave me an ostomy how long were you in the hospital before before you got home at that time i was in uh until the 25th of September. Um, so 11 days, um, I had problems with infection. I was on constant uh, antibiotics before they stepped me down to pills from IV antibiotics. Um, and I spiked a number of fevers because of the infection. But they, uh, they were going to send me home. It was the 25th of September. Um, and I saw the surgeon for the first time since, uh, since in the operating room. He said, we're thinking of sending you home tomorrow. And uh, I was happy. And, he's, and he was smiling the whole while. And the young resident, he was a chief surgical resident, is the, the man who was supposed to do informed consent. And they were smiling. So I, I smiled too. I was glad to go home. I did not feel good. I was still in horrible pain. But, but I was, I was glad to go home and the next morning they, they let me go home and it was a different resident who came in and he said, we're kind of iffy about sending you home because you still have a bit of infection. He says, your, uh, your white blood cell count is at 11 and normal is nine. 
but we're thinking we're going to send you home. You're going to have some antibiotics for a few weeks, two different kinds. So they did um, send me home with these antibiotics and a bottle of uh, morphine. Uh, I had asked to change. I had been taken dilaudid and I had asked to change after a few days to morphine because dilaudid wasn't handling the pain. So anyways, I, I spent four days home um, in horrible pain and, and um, was uh, uh, afraid that the antibiotics weren't working or they, I was reacting to them or whatever because I was getting sicker and sicker. Um, and I took almost all the morphine within the first couple of days. Anyway, I, uh, I had to move in there. I, uh, I moved uh, to another apartment on the 29th of September um, because my roommate was giving up the apartment that we lived in. So I had friends come and pack for me um, while I was in the hospital and hired a moving company. And we moved on the 29th of September. I didn't lift anything. I couldn't do anything. The moving company did everything. And uh, I still couldn't eat and was still feeling really badly. So I called the, uh, was it 311 or is it 211? 211, I think it is, is uh, you get a hold of an RN. And I told them what had happened to me and that I wasn't doing very well and that I was vomiting. And and uh, it, she said uh, she was going to send my our conversation ahead that I should go back to the ER. And the, the young resident had told me um, to go back to the ER if I had anything out of the unusual. Um, so I went back and I was readmitted on uh, September 30th with a small bowel obstruction and, and uh, abscesses had grown, um, multiple infections, uh, severe diffuse uh, um, colitis, a few other things anyway. Um, they kept me in for another two weeks and put me back on IV antibiotics and, and, uh, and painkiller and uh, uh, I couldn't eat for days again. Um, how, but the, how, how come your health went backward? Uh, because the, uh, when they stepped me down from the IV antibiotics to antibiotics by mouth, they didn't work. So when I went back in the hospital, they changed one of the uh, uh, antibiotics and put me back on IV antibiotics, which worked a lot better, put me back back on painkiller more uh, no it was still lauded to try and control the pain which was pretty bad at that point too so i was in there for almost two weeks got out thanksgiving sunday and went home again this time the the uh the infection was under control so how how were you feeling mentally emotionally during those two weeks, because you were feeling really rough coming out of the surgery. I, 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 I stayed pretty rough. I, um, back for the first two to three months, I was just in shock. I could carry on a conversation, but I couldn't think right. It's kind of dissociative. Um, couldn't believe this was happening to me. 
couldn't believe that I didn't see some kind of psychiatric help while I was in there because I said repeatedly to people um, that I was suicidal. The different people wrote in the notes that I was suicidal, that it had a devastating effect on me. But when I tried to tell people that I'd had surgery um, that I hadn't been told about, it, they just they didn't listen. They kind of missed it. And so your thoughts of suicide were a result of the surgery because it didn't sound like they were pre-existing before the surgery. No, they weren't. They weren't. I wasn't suffering from depression or anything. Um, so it was just as a result of the surgery, the pain, the shock, um, this sense of violation I felt just like I'd been raped. And I stayed that way. Uh, well, I, I still have some of that in me now, but in the last year about it's, it's not as quite as in my face as it was like from the moment I wake up for four years, just, I want to die. I want to die. I'd wake up kind of screaming in my head. Sometimes I think I woke up screaming out loud and the repetition, the constant reliving of what happened to me, it was the only thing going through my head. I just wanted to die and I'd be out walking in the street or whatever and a big truck or something would go by and I'd get the urge to want to throw myself under the the wheels but I also kind of didn't know what I was doing by times. It just wasn't here. I was just constantly reliving what happened to me. So it sounds like um, when you expressed that you wanted to be, would you somebody please kill me when you're coming out of surgery because you were just in so much pain, you wanted to die at that point. And then yeah. when they told you what they actually did in the surgery, um, then you're also feeling suicidal because you felt violated yes. and just not expecting all that. And yeah. so as you're describing it now, it's two weeks after the hospital, you're at home still recovering, but now you're wanting to commit suicide because of the PTSD is just so overwhelming. Yes. Yes. It was extremely overwhelming, but, but, I was also numb. I, I looked normal. I guess I sort of acted normal, except I didn't laugh or anything. But I was like, I was completely unfocused, like walking in a dream. What was your follow-up care like from the hospital, from your GP? I didn't see my own doctor until December, um, three months later. Um, because again, she's in a, in a different town. Um, my car had died about seven weeks before this happened to me and I hadn't figured out the buses yet. And they were pretty dramatic to try and get used to going on the bus. So I saw her, um, in December, she goes, Oh my God, what happened? Right. She knew I brought the little paper with me from the hospital to tell her in case she didn't know burst into her office um, crying 
and saying, look at what they did to me and pulling up my top. And I said, I just want to die. Um, so she put me on antidepressants right away to try and keep me alive until we could get it reversed. And uh, I'm, I'm not a huge believer in surgery. I'm, I'm uh, tomophobic is the, the word that I've heard used for it. Um, but it's basically, it's a fear of invasive events. And I've been that way since I was a kid because I had surgery as a 16 year old, a splenectomy after a car accident. And I had tried to escape the hospital then my parents, my father signed a consent form and I spent years afterwards being really messed up and fighting with my parents and everything over it. But it's really terrified of hospitals and uh, anything medical. I had gotten better. I've, I've had PTSD over time, over periods of time from a few different events. I was asymptomatic and had been for since about 2009, 2010, when this last one happened to me. I don't know if I, I don't think I was ever cured of it, but I was definitely, there comes a point when you can usually, a few years, the first time it was 10 years, last time it was 17 years, when you can sort of come out of it enough to be able to function in, to some extent. I mean, sometimes you can work, um, sometimes you can't. You know, I've, I've been a few years when I couldn't work, couldn't go out in public. Social phobia um, wouldn't allow anybody close to me. Yeah, it came roaring back when, uh, when this happened to me. To, other than the passage of time, what other things helped you in those two previous instances? Therapy. The first time I did not have any therapy. They just was in the late 70s. Post-traumatic stress disorder didn't make it to DSM-4 until 1980. So they didn't really know a whole lot. I, I, I went to university and took psychology and English. The first few years, I thought my problems, the rage and, 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 and things like that were because of well, I had a bad concussion and I had read in a book that these are symptoms of you know, having head trauma. Um, and it wasn't until I got to university and after that started reading about war veterans, Vietnam War veterans, Vietnam War hadn't been over that many years and you were reading a lot about things like flashbacks and and uh, people not able to function and violence and I said gee that sounds like me um, reading about things like um, shell shock but but they're all PTSD so I didn't really have any help other than time passage of time until the the, the second bout about 25 years ago of PTSD when I had, had uh, help. Therapy helped some. Venting, venting always helped a lot. Talking about it, writing about it. I've kept diaries on and off since I was 13. Being able to take control back. Um, with this last time, I'm a little better because of talking about it and actually putting in a complaint about what happened to me. Um, to the Nova Scotia College of 
uh, physicians and surgeons. Not that I, I can't really talk about that by law, um, what happened there, but it wasn't a real positive experience um, because they didn't believe me. And so has that been, and I use quotations here, has that been settled or is that still an ongoing concern? No, that's been, that's been settled. They, did, they, they just dismissed it um, without really examining it. And what I really wanted was not for somebody to get in trouble. I just wanted to know what happened to me and why it happened to me. And I, I like I, I wrote them letters and, and we went back and forth between the surgeon and I and trying to correct information. Didn't find he was very honest. In fact, when I, they photocopied the notes, the records of the hospital, and which I already had a copy of most of them, but they also um, sent me a copy of the last appointment that I had seen him, which was March 24, 2015. He wrote in this report, you know, that he was really surprised that I was upset that I claimed to have surgery that uh, I was never told about or properly consented for. And then he kind of descended into an ad hominem attack on my character and mental illness, uh, blaming things on mental illness that I wanted to die, that um, I uh, asked about euthanasia. I mean, he made me sound ridiculous in the letter, like I had, like a, a crazy person, and taken a lot of things that I'd asked about out of context, and wrote in this letter that I was further diagnosed a month before with a sexually transmitted disease and dyspareunia. I knew right away it shocked me when I saw this paper almost as much as waking up with an ostomy did um, because well, I knew it wasn't true that there was no way that I could have any kind of sexually transmitted infection um, but that I also had blood tests during the time that I went to the hospital and they proved I had no kind of infection at all because they tested me for abscesses and stuff and there was no infection at all but also the fact that I'm a single never married female who hasn't even been out on a date in uh, over 10 years I knew that was impossible and that that was him trying to I guess discredit um, anything I might say about having had surgery without consent and from the point of view of the College of physicians and surgeons, I had asked them when I saw this letter if they could get the notes from the hospital from this particular appointment. Uh, it wasn't an appointment, I just went to the ER and they didn't. So I sent the information back to the College of Physicians after they dismissed my case um, to ask them how to get it corrected because he had basically lied in an attempt to discredit me, part of institutional betrayal, I guess. Um, when a patient uh, tries to tell you you made a mistake and you, oh, you're crazy, blame the patient basically for their own uh, for their own problems. And in a letter written to my GP, who was a female, and she had actually read me part of the letter 
six months before about uh, that he had, had checked with the, the chief surgical resident um, to see that the papers were signed, but there was nothing in there, no notes or anything that he had given me any kind of informed consent. Um, he didn't, he just walked away from me, told me to sign this paper and walked away from me and I was never told anything. So they didn't really have informed consent actually involves informing somebody and I never was. My, doc my own doctor, after I went to see her in December, she made excuses for why this happened at first that, uh, you know, my bowel was ruptured. It had taken on a life of its own. They didn't have time to tell me, but I was on holds uh, in this room for five hours that someone could have told me anything, even hinted that I was going to have an actual surgery and not abscesses drained. And there were, I, I talked to somebody from patient relations uh, the same day as I, the last time I'd seen the, uh, the surgeon. And, and I, I said, there were no checks in place. Nobody ever asked me if I knew what procedure I was going to have. No one talked to me about it. They asked their questions, questions that they needed for their, charts or to fill in the blanks or whatever but there was nothing to inform me so I didn't have a clue and I didn't understand even why they were asking some of the questions they asked like uh, you know what kind of stressors I had at home or when was my last relationship or you know why wouldn't somebody say hey do you believe in surgery do you do you know you're having surgery? Do you know what's happening to you? Because I didn't. I think that these were good people, but I think maybe things might be a bit too routine. Um, surgery for them is an everyday event. It's too easy to forget something when you don't have maybe a checklist of things. Maybe everybody assumed that the young chief surgical resident had had told me and talked to me about it but that's why you need the repetition of having different people come at you different key personnel come at you and say do you know what's happening to you do you know what procedure you're having don't let somebody go in there thinking that they're only going to have abscesses drained and wake up missing their bowel and with an ostomy that's the most horrible cruel and inhumane thing that anybody's ever done to me. And, and I'm at conflict with myself because on the one hand, I'm grateful because they, they tried hard to help me. They were doing their jobs. But on the other hand, I didn't want to go through that. I, I, I still don't want to live with it. I, um, I had a right to know. I had a right to say no. I had a right to ask for alternate treatment which was what I thought the uh, having abscesses drained and allowing my bowel to heal on its own um, was. I don't know if you'd ever call that a never event what happened to me, but it's pretty close just in my opinion. In the patient safety world, uh, what is a never event? That's a common term in patient safety. A never event is like uh, performing surgery on the wrong person, on the 
wrong body part, the wrong surgery, which is kind of what happened to me having a surgery that I was not informed of. It's, it's the wrong surgery. Should never um, have happened. It should never have happened. Like I said, it, 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 it's an incredible shock very very damaging just as damaging mentally as as physically if not more it destroys your trust in anybody how much do you think how the hospital and the college of physicians which regulates the physicians how much has their response contributed to the ptsd you now experience i made it worse um, on the one hand, yes, but on, on the other hand, just having someone listen to me, like, like it was only by letters because I never actually met with them, um, but having the surgeon listen to me and what happened to me as a result of the mistakes actually made me better. I, 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 I liken it a little bit to restorative justice. Um, which is used in the courts quite often, where victims and perpetrators of crimes often meet, um, and the, the, the victims of the crime get to discuss with the perpetrators what effect this had on them. And restorative justice does work, at least in the court system, and I would say that it, this is sort of my version, that's what I'm calling it, is restorative justice. To not be listened to by the College of Physicians, to have them believe his lies, it, it hurts. It, it definitely makes the uh, PTSD worse. Um, it makes your sense of self-worth worse. But I also understand that he's a surgeon, he's a doctor, they need them. I didn't want anything to be done to him, just ex responsibility I'm not looking to sue anybody um, I've got a brother who's a lawyer and he said suing somebody would be the last thing I'd want to do plus only 2% of, of people who actually sue for malpractice win so it's not worth it. I just want people to learn from it and to stop it from happening to someone else if possible but like I said it did help me be less suicidal or less in your face suicidal i i was able to wake up like it's on my mind all the time it's it's intrusive but it's not quite as painful as it was it's not i'm not thinking i want to die every second of the day in fact i've been able to distract myself and do other things that actually help me when i am struggling and what are those things that help you when you're struggling? Because I, I know other folks will also be struggling yeah. and trying to well, figure out I'm, how to. I'm writing a book. I've been writing it for about a year. It's actually, it's a, it's a cookbook, but it's a mental wealth cookbook. And the, the reason why is my, my mom died uh, 30 years ago. And a lot of her recipes and things that kind of went their separate ways, people took recipe boxes and and so some of these things I've never had again some of the things that she made for us some of the recipes I've never seen in 30 years I used to work as a graphic designer and I decided I'm going to do uh, 
a cookbook with mental health information in it because it struck me that a lot of people don't understand unless they actually experience it themselves or even if you know somebody who, who does have it there are a whole lot of things that people don't know and a whole lot of statistics and and even a whole lot of people that have led amazing lives despite the fact they have mental illness. Uh, Madame Curie suffered from depression. Uh, Veronica Lake suffered from schizophrenia. A lot of it of the book is, is about PTSD and depression, but some of it's about other mental illnesses and facts and figures and suicide rates in countries where they've actually shown decreases in uh, mental health problems because of private care um, in, instead of it institutions being gotten rid of and, and, and people being taken care of in private hospitals where they get more one-on-one -on -one attention and so there, there's a ton of information but I'm trying not to make it a downer book um, I'm trying to make it something positive and that's why I call it the mental wealth cookbook I actually called it the another, another sister's uh, mental wealth cookbook um, because I can poke fun at myself, uh, other people do. And I've illustrated and laid it all out um, myself. I'm only about half done. I had hoped to be done by this year, but it had the effect of being able to distract me at the worst of times when PTSD was at its worst. I also, I, I, I go out and I spend time every day with a, a friend who is uh, intellectually challenged. Um, we used to live together for uh, five years and I go down and see her and make her supper every day. And that kind of gives me a feeling that maybe I'm doing something sort of worthwhile, that there's a reason to keep on living. So you're taking your experience and making an alternate meaning out of it. I'm trying to make something positive out of it because the, the, the first four years, everything was completely negative. I, I couldn't figure out a reason why I still existed, why I survived this, because I certainly didn't want to. Um, and I was fighting for assisted dying. For people who aren't familiar with uh, that term, it's uh, the acronym is MADE, Medically Assistance in Medically Death. Medically Assisted, yeah, yeah. Um, it's something I believed in, um, the right to die since I was about 15. Believed in it even more when my parents both got sick. How come? It should have been, my mom desperately wanted to live. She got sick in the early 1980s. Um, she was younger than I am now. She desperately wanted to live and she would have done anything to live. And she had four operations and multiple bouts of chemo, etc. She should have had the option of ending her suffering if it got too bad. She suffered horribly, horribly, just physically and mentally and if you wanted to stop that um you had to take your own life she spent the last two and a half months of her life starving to death she was able to take little sips of coffee but basically 
she was a living skeleton. She looked like a, a concentration camp victim by the time she died. And she should have had the option to be able to stop that suffering. So yeah, it's something I believe in strongly, but I also strongly believe in people's right to live, even though they're sick, they're terminally ill, because so it's it's both sides of the assisted dying or not assisted dying. Um, I'm about choice. I'm about people making their own decisions. So it occurs to me that because your complaint with the College of Physicians was dismissed, that there's no assurance that the errors that you experienced aren't being repeated. That's correct. And that's why... Um, I've re refused to be shut down. <laughs> like I said, I from the, the beginning, I don't want to hurt anybody. I don't want to point my finger at these doctors. I believe that they meant well, but I believe that what happened to me, but most people don't care until it happens to them or happens to somebody they love. But the thing is, is like, what happened to me could happen to any person, anyone. Some traumas are so intense that you'd almost rather die than face the fear. Like there's nothing that I'm any more afraid of than surgery, than um, going into hospitals. I mean, I have a hard time even going by them on the bus. My, and my throat is just um, strangling me. So... How are you doing now, both physically and mentally, emotionally? Definitely better than I was. Physically, I'm still healing. Um, I don't know that I'm, I'm never going to be normal. Um, but in the last few months, there's been some reduction in pain and the improvement in, in the function of the bowel. Cause, and mentally... Um, I'm quite a bit better. I, I mean, I still have PTSD and it's going to last a long, long time. And what are you doing? What sort of therapy are you getting for that right now? Uh, none right now. There's a, uh, a gentleman who saw me for a couple of years pro bono um, because he was somebody that I knew for me, a, a behavioralist approaches sort of work better trying to reshape things and find the positives in things. Um, by times, no, you can't do that when it first happens. You, you, it just, you concentrate on trying to assure somebody that they're safe and that it's not going to happen again. For me, trying to, to go too positive at first, just you can't do it. I was just, um, my whole brain was... Um, negatively wired um, and I've read and heard been told by doctors that anesthetic can actually mess your brain up uh, dr dramatically that's without having an adverse event like uh, PTSD um, so yes I, I wasn't depressed at the time that this all happened to me but um, within three months I yeah was very, very clinically um, depressed and treatment resistant. And my PTSD has always been treatment resistant. 
I know that for some people, um, therapy helps, but like I said, you mainly you've got to make sure that person feels safe. And I haven't felt safe in years, but I'm doing a little better. That's how you're doing physically and mentally now, still dealing with the PSD, although it's lessened some. Yeah, and you're writing the uh, cookbook, which sounds very therapeutic and meaningful and also increasing awareness. So it's not just meaningful for you, but it's meaningful for the public. Yes, yeah. Um, And I, I did start just writing down what happened to me. Like I've tried blogging and everything else. I find it very, very painful, but I just want to write down what happened in like book form, even if I have to self-publish it. Um, And even if nobody reads it, because I think that will be therapeutic for me as well. So yes, I'm doing better uh, considerably because my, my attitude has changed. I'm trying to live with it and I'm trying to forgive it, but I don't want it to happen to anyone else. I I, I know from my own experience that anger, even justifiable anger, is darker and more malignant than just about any cancer. Um, And it can eat you alive from the inside out. And it doesn't do anything to the person you're angry at. It destroys you. Um, I, I, I had said at first, you know, they should all be videotaped, uh, informed consent. Yeah, it's a form of accountability. It is, and, it, and it's protection for both the hospital and the patient. There's all kinds of uh, assistive technology, but I think the, the biggest thing is just make sure you communicate. There was a a doctor in Ontario who lost her license for two years, a gynecologist for um, performing multiple surgeries and taking out body parts, you know, second ovaries and hysterectomies and stuff like that without getting consent. You know, she had like 27 patients with adverse outcomes. In one case, one lady went in for a hysterectomy and her bowel had ruptured, whether it was nicked during the surgery or whatever, but she required uh, an ostomy and multiple surgeries for trying to repair the damage done to her. Now, I believe the surgeon who operated on me is, is, is a good surgeon. I've heard that he is. I don't think it matters how good you are if somebody doesn't have consent, if people don't know what's going on, if they you know, you can't make a decision based on something that you haven't been told. You're only as good as the information that passes back and forth from doctor to patient, um, no matter how good you are in, in, in surgery. Well, those are some real words of experience and wisdom. It's uh, really around the communication. Your idea of um, video recording or even audio recording the uh, consent information, that's a great, simple idea. But they said that uh, that's sort of an invasion of privacy. And no, it's it's safety. It's safety for you and it's safety for the patient. Well, uh, Elizabeth's experience really speaks to the importance of clear communication between doctor and patient. 
And I wonder, will we ever see recorded informed consent to protect both the patient and the doctor? We can hope. Thank you for listening to this episode of Medical Error Interviews. And if you need an experienced counselor to deal with your own medical error issues, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me at my website, remediescounseling.com. You can also support the podcast by subscribing on iTunes, Spotify, and other podcast platforms and leave a kind comment. And you can also become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com slash medical error interviews. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast. Thank you for listening. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to others.